When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Professor Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, If we have time, we're getting through three topics. Where do we begin today, Tim? I think we've got to begin in France, because um, although there are indeed strikes in Britain, um, they really are not on a scale um, that France is experiencing. Um, uh, President Macron uh, came to power and very much wanted to reform um, the, the 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 sort of the the, the modern social settlement mm. in France. And and at the core of that um, is extraordinary, um, generous. Um, uh, retirement packages. A, a lot of people in France retire in their very, very early 60s, and and quite a number of people um, still retire in their 50s and expect to have 20 or 25 years of generous payments while um, while they do other things. And while that sounds wonderful, we shouldn't forget that France has some of the biggest uh, public debt in the world. Um, it is, in fact, uh, just behind the United States and Japan. And so uh, the, the lots and lots of trade unions um, don't want his sort of neoliberal Anglo-Saxon reforms, as, as they uh, suggest they are. Um, they want to carry on with these generous packages. Um, and uh, the public generally, public opinion in France, I have to say, seems to be with the trade unions. Just over 20% of the public... Um, uh, uh, blame the trade unions for being wrong. But but more than 60% of people want to keep the generous terms of the past. Where this is a real nightmare, potentially, and a nightmare not just for France, but the European Union, um, is that there seems to have been some sort of implicit deal between the Germans and the French for some time, that, that if Macron was elected, re-elected in France, that he would, um, he would indeed make these reforms some of some of these sort of reforms sort of reforms we've seen both labor and conservative governments make in this country and, and indeed long before that with uh, john major and margaret thatcher but really the french want the uh, want to make these reforms so that the germans will agree to the next steps of european monetary union and fiscal union for example transfer rights if uh, the french do not make these reforms and they don't have therefore a viable way of managing uh, French public sector debt in the medium and long term, I think the Germans uh, will not um, accept um, fiscal union and that therefore long term the euro project could be in Mm. danger. You've said how popular it is in France, because not quite so popular in some of the other European countries where they look with with envy and perhaps incredulity at how generous the French system 
is because most of the other countries in in Europe um, have a far later retirement age and people are expected, you know, pensions are considerably less generous. I mean, you've talked before about how the West, we've got aging populations. It's not just the French. Um, We talked recently about Africa and how that's such a young nation compared to us. They've got this democratic um, uh, benefit. We certainly don't have it here. Most of the Western countries, you've got fewer and fewer people of working age trying to support pensioners. Uh, You're absolutely right there. And of course, one of the most rapidly aging countries in the West is Japan. But already a lot of Japanese people uh, retire um, around 66, 67, 68. Um, You then have the United States. You know, a lot of Americans seem to retire at around 64, whereas in France, people retire at 61, 62. Now, within France, there are groups that actually retire, as I've said, in their early Mm. to mid. 50s it's it, it, there's very there's very little uniformity of rules in france there are all kinds of little platoons in france yes yes uh, who who have their own quirky histories and policies but generally um generally um france italy and germany are relatively generous the united kingdom is sort of in the middle of the pack whereas the united states and certainly japan people retire later of course there are even issues in britain i mean there is a suggestion that um that as time goes by um and we spend ever more on our health service on social care that to remain solvent britain is going to again have to increase its retirement mm-hmm. aid uh 68 69 or 70 and, and, and i sort of expect that i have to say though of course uh, we we have an odd pension system don't we and the, the the people in the private sector frequently you're getting much less generous pensions and may be forced to rely on the state pension, whereas, of course, many of those in the public sector are getting gilt-edge pensions that are related to their final salaries and which are guaranteed for life, even though one might argue that by and large public sector workers don't necessarily contribute to the general wealth of the country that pays for those pensions. You're right. and But gone are the days when there were uh, these gold-plated pensions, even in the private sector. If you go back 30 or 40 years and you were looked at the pension schemes, for example, of Shell Oil or great conglomerates like Unilever, boy, were those pensions generous as well. Um, uh, these companies have tended to move moved away from that era. Uh, you're right that there are elements of the public sector where that tradition clings on. But it's I think just, the- just one aside there, Tim, sorry to interrupt, but yes, in the old days, of course, British Airways was one of those. It was often said British Airways was a pension scheme with the airline attached. <laughs> exactly. And there was an awful lot of it about, you know. Yes. But, but I mean, the, 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 the really big picture here is that you're right about ageing societies and whether you're coming, you know, from that, that past in the private sector where you looked at those uh, all those gilt edge packages, or you're looking at politicians here who are incrementally raising retirement ages. The truth is, is that right across Europe, the pressures are on making people work harder, make them work longer, because we have this demographic shift. We have huge numbers of older people and particularly people in their 70s and 80s who have huge demands for health and social care, and we have smaller, um, you know, we're just not having as many children. Mm. And and therefore, you know, we're putting, the tax burden is growing. So somebody's going to have to give. So the reality is we're all going to have to work longer 
um, uh, if if we're going to remain competitive. But there are other places you mentioned it, like Africa, where it's a world away, and they have all the benefits of very youthful, very dynamic populations, um, and they don't have the burden of having created uh, welfare policies um, yet uh, with all the attendant expectations and the risk of debt. I've no doubt it will come in Africa, but I think it will come in the last half of this century. Tim, uh, time for us to switch topics. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Where do we go uh, next, Tim? Having told us we're all going to have to work much, much longer and exist on insubstantial pensions, where do we go now? Well, I think we've got to come back to Britain, haven't we? And we've actually got to look at uh, the strikes and, and, and the trade unions that we have here. Really uh, thought-provoking piece by Andrew Neil recently, uh, called These Strikes Are Proving the Unions No Longer Have the Power to Paralyze the Nation. As someone who was born in the mid-60s, I well remember um, the three-day week in the early 70s, and I remember the winter of discontent in 78-9, and all the upheaval, um, particularly involving trade unions in the early 1980s, uh, whether it was SOGAT 82, if you remember Brenda Dean, um, or the first steel strike, the Aslev strike, and of course, the miners' strike. In those days, trade unions were powerful. They had more than 13 million members in the United Kingdom, and we lost many, many millions of days to strikes. And management and unions were polarised, um, uh, and often these were ideological differences. Um, there was a sort of fundamental belief in the difference between the interests of labour and capital, and never could the train meet. But we're in a very different world now, and it seems that the trade union numbers in this country are right down. We have less than six and a half million uh, members of trade unions. The majority of trade unionists are still in the public sector, but their numbers have declined substantially in the private sector over the last 30 or 40 mm. years. And uh, sorry, we have a dog in the background. Uh, That's fine, Tim. I can hardly hear it. Don't worry. OK, but um, the... The the reality is that although these strikes are going on in Britain, rail strikes, we've had postal services, nurses, uh, and indeed university lecturers, um, Andrew Neil points out that they they don't seem to uh, be as impactful on government as they were all those years ago, and one of the reasons for that is that we've become more used to working from home. Um, and maybe there aren't ambulances available. Well, more people are prepared to take taxis. Um, if there are days where there are not um, uh, railways working, people yeah. adjust their diaries accordingly. And what he's really calling into question is simply the ability of the trade unions 
to get that traction and to cause those sort of knockout blows both to public life and indeed to government. I think the majority of the public probably now are fairly sympathetic to lots of these workers, many of whom haven't had uh, particularly significant pay rise in recent years, many of whom have not done well, particularly mindful of inflation. So I think the, the public mood has changed. But as to really delivering the knockout blows and putting the government over a barrel, I'm not sure um, that, that the trade unions mm. have the critical mass that they had all those years ago when I was so young. And of course, now, for the first time in goodness knows how many years, when the government is trying to, to fight inflation, or once inflation brought down, I suppose they've they, um, farmed that out to the Bank of England, um, clearly were many of these pay rises to actually go through at the same sort of rate as inflation. All we're doing then is stoking inflation and preventing it from coming back down as soon as possible. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, uh, uh, international energy markets, the prices seem to be moving in the right direction to bring inflation down. The Bank of England has finally uh, started to put up interest rates. But, you know, when you actually look at the history of the trade union movement in this country, and when you think of um, the Chartist movement of the 1830s and the 1840, expansion of the franchise, mm. belief in democracy, expansion of suffrage, when you think of its relationship to a burgeoning and very successful trade union movement that provided all kinds of benefits uh, through friendly societies, spin-offs, you know, um, lots of friends in the in the disestablished churches, um, like you know the Methodist tradition, and then you come right through the twentieth century, the general strike, and all that upheaval in the nineteen seventies and early eighties. You know these were powerful bodies that were able to um, have serious impacts on governments, to bring in legislation, uh, health and safety, protection for children. Mm -hmm decent pensions, all the rest of it, it does seem that that sort of great 150-year history um, is not what it was. It, it feels very slightly, dare I say it, that trade unions um, are, are no longer the institutions of power mm. that they were in that in that and, era. And as um, Neil points out in the article, you know, when the post office workers go and on strike, I mean, you know, just before Christmas, what happened was that many people would either not send cards or send emails, you know, animated emails instead and just simply ignore the post office. So what they're doing is hastening the demise of, of sending letters upon which their jobs actually depend. And even more extraordinary, of course, was when the border um, force workers went on um, strike, when everybody suddenly started saying, well, I've never managed to get through um, into the country as quickly. Their yeah, strikes seem well, to rebound on them completely. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the army were brought in to fill a lot of the posts of border force. And apparently things, uh, according to many observers, were better managed and, and worked far more smoothly. Uh, yes, I, I think there has been a lot of blowback. There's, you know, a lot of this has spun off unintended consequences for the trade unions. Um, and a lot of people, the point is, a lot of ordinary people now are able to factor these strikes in and to find mm. a different way. I mentioned, you know, if, if 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 you do think you need an ambulance, an awful lot of people, you know, people who are not you know, critically or a car crash or having mm. a heart attack, if they don't feel well, you know, they will have thought to themselves, okay, 
today there are no ambulances you know but well we know we'll go in by car or whatever yes. or book a, or book an uber a taxi or talk to a neighbor and find a way in people mm. are navigating their way around and there just was not the scope to do that when i was young in the 1970s there was no internet mm. uh, to send your you know your wonderful animated christmas cards um uh, people are finding a way so i think trade unions bless them you know have got a real problem on their hands here and and just one last question before we change subjects tim i mean how politically motivated are these strikes do you feel are they more aimed against the conservative government or do you think they are really just trying to make sure that they're the the members of their unions are getting a fair crack of the whip in an age when cost of living is is rising so quickly so, so if you go back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s, there is no doubt that there was a hardline element that was well known within the British trade unions. Um, and it wasn't just Labour, uh, left to the Labour Party. There were people in there uh, who were members of the Communist Party of Great Britain. And some of those were hardline Marxist Leninists. And, you know, they were there to disrupt British capitalism and, and and ultimately some of the extreme ideologues wanted a socialist or indeed a communist revolution. I think a lot of that is swept away. There are people who regard themselves to be socialists, but the average trade unionist now is actually, um, I think, just more interested in their pay packet, their terms and conditions. And quite rightly, they see issues like health and safety um, not in terms of the right often see it, they're just another burden on, on economic woes, but they actually see health and safety as an investment. You know, it costs an, it costs an awful lot if uh, a skilled worker goes down or has to be pensioned off. Mm. It is far better to live in a country where there are, you've invested in your health and safety and you have a reputation for health and safety and for reliability and high quality goods and services. So, so you know, but the big issue here is pay and conditions. And um, I don't think um, that there is that ideological um, sort of centre that there was when when I was young. I think I think a lot of these strikes are about fair play, that British sense of fair play. There isn't that much ideology in them. Um, it's about, you know, should postmen and women and doctors and ambulance drivers and nurses and the rest do they deserve a pay rise given the rampant inflation of recent years and i think the average person probably thinks that they should of course if you're in the government if you're in government and you're in the treasury and the bank of england you're terribly worried that actually uh, that will simply fuel inflation and that you might give a short-term uplift but mm. actually, or fuel inflation, and six months a year, 18 months down the line, uh, what appeared to be uh, an uplift in pay actually turns out to be um, uh, a, an illusion. You know, it's yes. it, it, it here today and gone tomorrow. So these are terribly difficult forces to bring together. But um, I don't think there is the... Um, the extreme sort of ideologies that that people like Arthur Scargill in the day clearly mm. adhered to when he was wandering off to the Russian embassy every now and then for a chat. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to our our last subject, um, Tim. You want to have a look at the the, the cabinet um, reshuffle, um, not so much of the night of the long knives as the small teaspoons, but um... well, indeed. I mean, I have to say, an awful lot of people moved around, um, but uh, and it was heralded as quite a big thing. 
But for me, my big takeaway was what an enormous yawn. Um, I mean, I thought it was great that Kemi Badenoch, who I think is a real rising star in British politics, uh, was appointed Secretary of State for Business and Trade. But um, apart from you know that, I, I can't say that British politics of the left or the right is exactly riven with great personalities or or, or tremendous mm. excitement. So for me, given that it was quite an extension, an extensive reshuffle. Um, I don't remember a reshuffle that was so wide-ranging, yet came with such a large yawn factor. Um, it really was a so what. That was my big takeaway. Yes, of course, you're talking about how few politicians there are of um, sort of uh, you know, world renown at the moment. Of course, we have actually seen one when Zelensky um, turned up, and he's, to some extent, you know, we know why he was here, but somehow when Zelensky turns up, it makes us realise just what pygmies most of our politicians, and indeed politicians in most countries, are in comparison. And this is a man who was a, a comic actor who almost got voted in as a joke. Indeed. Well, um, I think we have an awful lot of comic actors um, in our parliament on all sides at the moment. Um, um, but they're, they're, they, they're clearly not of the ability and the standing uh, and the genius of Mr Zelensky. Um, no, I mean, I just found this all a non-entity, and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, when a real star, someone like Zelensky, arrives in Parliament, you know, a lot of our politicians think that you know they're quite egotistical. Lots of them think they're 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 sort of planets of various description. But boy, when a Zelensky arrives, it's like it's like a colossal planet. It's like a Jupiter arriving. There are very very few Jupiters left, I think, in Britain. You know, I mean, even I look at the Prime Minister. I have to say, and I look at the leader of the opposition, um, Sir Keir Starmer, I'm sure they're terribly nice people, but they're not the most charismatic. They're not the most impressive. So what has changed him? When you and I were younger, if people, we can think back that far, there were many politicians, not always in cabinet or shadow cabinet positions, who were the so-called big, big beasts, people you would admire, even you didn't necessarily agree with what they said, John Reed, Enoch Powell, um, I mean, so many of them. But Where I think have they gone? So I think the first thing is that when we were younger, politics was more exciting and it attracted people who were exciting because there were great ideological and philosophical cleavages. You know, we had, in effect, a 150-year war between the ideas of sort of free market capitalism and various forms of state socialism. Mm. Well, you know, after Margaret Thatcher and, and with the arrival of Tony Blair uh, and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, most importantly, that 150-year war has come to an end. And we're now simply debating uh, what sort of um, settlement there should be between free market capitalism and and sort of social democracy. So it's a fairly middle-of-the-road debate. And when you've got a fairly middle-of-the-road debate, um, it's often difficult mm -hmm. to work out uh, the cleavages and the differences between people, and you tend not to have the sort of charisma and excitement and polarising debate that comes with that. The next thing is, I would say that politicians actually now in this country, although they're paid well, in comparison to the opportunities that are to be found elsewhere, in finance, in the professions, in banking, they're not paid that much money. So there is a question, you know, who would go into politics um 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 and 
have your life fully exposed the entire time in the world of social media, have all your expenses completely pulled over and actually have really unsocial hours. And even if you do really well, you're not going to do amazingly well in terms of in terms of of income and money. And you're certainly not going to on on the average MP's salary, for example, not going to be able to buy a really nice property in London. You may be able to scrape a one or two bedroom flat. So it's you know, it isn't great as a career choice. And the other thing, the last thing I would say um, is that politics has become uh, more transparent. There is ever more uh, democracy. And in some ways, there's more accountability. But with the democracy comes professionalization. And with the professionalization comes a sort of uniformity of rules. Um, politicians now are more professional. Um, uh, they, they, you know, they, they dress very smartly. They sound similar. They're very clever in, in terms of their media training. But that means that they often are somewhat bland. And it, yeah. what you don't get anymore are the quirky characters. They're just not selected. You know, yes. if Michael Foote today went before the average Labour Party selection committee, he probably wouldn't be selected because he isn't smart enough. You know, he's too eccentric, slightly like nervous dicks, you know, tie all over the place. Um, um, and that goes for all kinds Mine, of people. Boris got in. Uh, Boris did. Boris did. But he got in quite some time ago. But yeah. he is a slightly eccentric, larger than life, charismatic character. But he's one of the very few left. Mm. That's the point. You know, no, very few conservative associations, for example, are going to ever now choose someone like Boris or indeed um, um, uh, Mr. Soames or or those sort of people who become yes. the Tory grandees. No, it, you know, you're, you're kind of slim. You know, you're, you, you look similar. You dress similarly. Um, um, and and you are, in inverted commas, a professional, a sort of professionalised politician. You're very good at rhetoric. You're very good at spin. You do a great interview. But are you really thinking or saying anything truly different or, para- or profound? Increasingly not. Yes. All very, um, all very sad and very, very true. Tim, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and political economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, I hope we'll be back with me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.